Hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're tackling chapter 6 of Galatians. That's the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And we'll delve into that text in just a few minutes. There's three main parts we're going to look at in that last chapter. Before we get there, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus the Christ, that he died in our place, that we might be made right with you, not based on our actions or or merits of a law that we have kept, but Father, because you loved us and because you provided a way that if we place our faith in him, then we're covered by his righteousness. Father, we thank you for the law, that it shows us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But even more so, we thank you for that Savior, that we are not just condemned, we are forgiven and made right with you. Lord, as we turn our hearts to this last chapter of Galatians today, we ask that you would make our hearts sensitive to the prompting of your Spirit to the conviction that you may bring upon us as we are challenged by this text, by your word, and by your spirit. But Father, also that you would give us wisdom and discernment, that we would use the gift of this intellect that you have given each one of us to understand, to take in this information, to understand its context, and and to see how it applies in our lives, and to begin that task of living it out in faith and obedience to you. Lord, speak to us today through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to say, as we begin looking at chapter 6, I'm torn because... In tackling a chapter like this within church life, as I pastor my congregation, I always like to look at this and go, oh, it's only 18 verses. This won't take long. And I want to say that. And I mean that. And yet somehow it always takes a while to get through it. So I'm I'm going to confess to you, I, I have a desire to say this isn't going to take long. But the reality is it's going to take as long as it takes us. So let's go ahead and get started. Chapter 6, of course, Paul's letter to the Galatian church. They've been struggling with these Judaizers that have come in and and wanted to draw them back to the laws of Judaism, even to the point of being circumcised and obeying all the dietary laws and the festivals and rituals and everything, and that they had to do that to be a good Christian, versus Paul proclaiming the gospel and the freedom found in Christ in the gospel, that we are set free from the law. And that that freedom isn't a license to sin, uh, just the contrary, that in response to that freedom we are given, we will use that freedom to obey God, to glorify Him. So, let's get into chapter 6. The first 10 verses of chapter 6 are a continuation of this discussion Paul's been on. He's, He's talked about arguments from nature and arguments from the Old Testament and all about being saved by grace, what that looks like, as opposed to being under the law. 
He's just come off a discussion of what the fruits of our sinful nature are versus the fruits of our spiritual nature when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, the things that are seen in our lives, and encouraging us very bluntly to follow the Spirit's leading instead of the flesh leading. And that's how we will honor God. And then we get to chapter 6, and he, he begins to talk about how we interact with each other more directly. First off, he's dealing with the issue in the first oh, three or four verses of how to deal with a, a sinner, if you will, in our midst. Not that we all aren't sinners, but one who is, is um, well, let me just read it. It'll make sense. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer, keyword there, believer, is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way, Obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Now, I've pointed out along the way, I believe 513, 513 there we go, was one of the passages I said would be a great one to memorize. Um, I don't like chopping up verses, but you know, you see stuff on plaques or t-shirts, or Bible covers, or whatever that has a scripture reference and then has an A or a B for whether you take the first part or the second part. Uh, I love the bluntness with which, especially the New Living Version, relates verse 3, part B, if you will, or maybe, maybe it'd be part C, I don't know. But to finish a verse with, you are not that important. Wow, don't we need that reminder all too often? We're not that important. It's about Christ. It is God's work in this world. He's invited us to be part of it. He loves us. We have great value in the eyes of God, so much so that he sees each one of us as worth his son, because that's what he paid for us. But, it's easy for us to get consumed by the idea of our own importance. I think it's that that underlying drive for significance or importance that has led so many in our modern world, especially through the avenues of social media, to exchange notoriety and infamy for importance. They're not all the same thing. Well, let's go back and unpack those verses a little. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Um, now, godly there are also translated spiritual, those that are, are grounded in Christ, in essence. And we're talking about within the family here, believers. If you have a believer that is overcome by sin, what is the prescribed method for dealing with that? All too often in Christian life, uh, we even use the phrase that uh, the way we deal with a person 
in our congregation, in our in our Christian family, our brother or sister in Christ that is dealing with sin, that is struggling, has been overcome by their sin, our immediate response is we shoot the wounded. That's not the best approach. That's not even a godly approach. What Paul is reminding us, our job here is, if we're rooted in Christ, if we have some maturity of faith under our belt, and we have a brother or sister that is overcome by sin, our job is to gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. You may go, well, what do you mean humbly? If we're solid in our relationship with Christ, why do we need to be humble about that? Isn't that one of the things to boast in? Not in this case, no. It definitely isn't something to boast in. Because the next verse explains it. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. You see, we can truly help our brother and sister in Christ when we're rooted in Christ and we gently and humbly restore them because we need to understand it is Christ that does the restoring and the healing in their lives. It's not us. It's our job to carry the message and to show the love. Christ does the work. And that, well, as the old phrase goes, there but by the grace of God go I. Our humility should come from the fact that we know that we struggle with the flesh and that sin is common to us all. So when I see that brother overcome by sin, I need to understand just how close I am to that reality. It could have been me. We always want to go, oh, that would never happen to me. Man, I'm a pastor. I watch other pastors fall flat on their face, moral failings, financial failings. And yeah, it could be real easy to sit back and go, I would never do that. I don't have a problem. That's not an issue for me. But you know what happens when I do that? I've just given you a list of all those blind spots that I'm open for attack. By the enemy, because I think I'm above attack by the enemy. That's a problem. We need to approach each other with humility, not from an attitude of superiority, but with gentleness and humility. Now, sometimes that gentleness and humility is, well, I would say pretty much all the time, it's not going to be pleasant for the person receiving it. They're not always going to like what they hear or like what they see. But the idea, even when we deal with what Paul talks to the church about when he deals with church discipline and expelling the immoral brother from back in Corinthians and, and all that type of stuff, it is all built around the idea of redemption. Even when we withdraw fellowship from a from a brother in Christ that has chosen to live a sinful life in rejection of the clear and stated will of God, we're told to pull back from them, to withdraw fellowship from them. But the intended outcome is not to hurt them, is not to tear them down or build us up. It is to restore them, 
to bring them to the point of brokenness where restoration becomes possible. Well, he's not going that far here. He's just reminding us that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in this together. And when we see, you know, we're supposed to mourn together. We're supposed to celebrate together. So when we see that brother or sister overcome by sin, our immediate response shouldn't be to distance ourselves. It shouldn't be to trash that person. It shouldn't be to shoot the wounded so we look better. It should be that those among us, and if we're not in this category, we need to step back. Those among us who are godly, who are spiritual, who are grounded in Christ, need to, with accountability, with humility, and with gentleness, seek to build that person up. Why? Because our goal is to get them back onto the right path. And our humility comes from the understanding we may fall into the same temptation, so we need to put those safeguards, those hedges up in our life to protect us, that accountability in our lives to prevent that from happening. Humility and gentleness. All right, well, that's verse one. Now we can see where that, it's only 18 verses, it'll be quick, falls apart for me. Sorry about that. But let's keep going. Verse 2. Share each other's burdens, and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you know, excuse me, not if you know. Wow, that's a slip there. Verse 3. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. There's a little reality check there. In two verses, Paul has, or three verses, Paul has made it real clear. Our job as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is to build each other up. Our job is to share each other's burdens. Our job is to, with gentleness and humility, take that brother and sister that has been overcome by sin and help restore them onto the right path. And that we are subject to falling into the same temptation ourselves, that the law of Christ calls us to share each other's burdens, to lift each other up. And if by some chance we might acknowledge that we are prone to temptation ourselves, but we still think we're too important to help somebody else, and I kind of think that would be an odd situation. I think the people that are Thinking of themselves as too important to help someone else also think they're above temptation. But be that as it may, if we think we're too important to help somebody else, it's all about me. Look at how important I am. We are fooling ourselves because the truth is we just aren't that important. That is the reality check for us. Paul, in three verses, confronts our arrogance, our pride, our insecurity, our attitude problems within the body of Christ. And this is all in the family. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's go on to verse 4. He says, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, 
and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Here, let me put it this way for you. What has God called you to do in this life? And I don't just mean the big con. Like for myself, right now in my life, God has called me to be a pastor. He's called me to that calling, wow, 30 years ago this fall. And I have been serving in full-time ministry for over 20 years now. That is my calling as far as my vocational ministry, the role he has called me to in the life of the church at this point. That may change. God can call as he wants to call. But right now, that's the calling. Is that the only calling he's placed in my life? No. He's called me to be a husband. He's called me to be a father. He's called me to be a a son and a son-in-law. He's called me to be a friend. He's called me to be a co-worker. He's called me to be part of a fellowship of believers. He's called me to be all of these different things and more. So, every one of those becomes my work before the Lord. Am I living the life that Christ is calling me to live? Not just the jobs or the titles, but am I who Christ is calling me to be? If I'm paying attention to that, and that becomes my focus, and I understand that is my work that is done as worship unto God, and everything I do falls under that, then it becomes easier for me to pay careful attention to my own work. For then I will get the satisfaction of a job well done. Now, personalizing that text there. And I won't need to compare myself to anybody else. Because there are people that have it together more than I do. When I look around, and I can't see all the aspects of their life, but I see people that are better husbands, better dads, better pastors, better friends, better speakers, better preachers, better you name it, better drivers, whatever. When I start comparing myself to others, I begin to talk down to myself. And not in a humble sort of way. And not in a reflective sort of way. But in a crippling and destructive sort of way. That makes me almost incapable of being the person that God is calling me to be. Of focusing on my work. Because my work comes secondary to, but I can never do it like them rolling around in my head. I need to make my work before God the focus. And when each one of us does that, and that's what Paul's encouraging, when each one of us minds our own work before God and makes the standard of, am I doing this unto the Lord? Am I doing this to the best of my ability and under my calling to God? then we're not going to be worried about what the guy over there is doing. Because we're going to trust that he's going to be working unto the Lord. 
So it gives us a change in perspective. Verse 5, for we are each responsible for our own conduct, not the conduct of the guy next to us, our own conduct. And that's our own conduct before the Lord, not I'm better or worse than the guy next to me. You know, the old adage about I don't have to be able to outrun a bear if I'm in the woods with somebody. I just have to be able to outrun the guy next to me. That is not a metaphor for the Christian life. But we don't need to be comparing ourselves to the guy next to us either. We need to be pursuing our call in Christ, our work set before us by the Lord. Keep our eyes on Him. Keep our hands busy at the task he set before us and lift the burdens of the guy next to us, but don't compare the work. Don't compare the work. For we are responsible for our own conduct. Those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. So there's another aspect that Paul brings in. Those that are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. What does that mean? Is he talking pay there? Partially. But he's also talking, if God gives you an insight, if someone's been teaching you and you have that aha moment, share it with them. Be it your Sunday school teacher, your pastor, your, your friend that you're just doing a daily devotional with, or whatever. Share what God is opening your eyes to. It may be something they haven't heard or seen. It may be a, a different approach, or it may be a word that they need to hear today. It may just be they need that affirmation of seeing you light up. I can tell you, as a teacher... Seeing someone get it is an awesome experience, and it builds my faith to see what God is doing in another's life. So, those who are taught the Word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. And this does involve also financial support as well as spiritual support. But that's the way God set it up. Now we dig into verse 7. Paul says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Now that's pretty practical. I grew up in a farming family. My grandfather was a farmer. And my first job was working for him on the farm. And there's this simple reality. If we were to plant a field of cotton, then with the exception of some weeds that might crop up, what we planted was what grew. If we went out and planted a field of cotton seed, we did not get a field of corn. And you would go, well, yes, Scott, that's obvious. If you don't plant corn, you're not going to get corn. If you plant one type of plant, that's the type of plant you're going to get. And yet Paul has to remind the believers at Galatia, and I think us as well, that we should not be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will harvest what you plant. 
You're going to harvest what you plant. What does that mean? Well, he goes on to explain. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature, nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. Now, why would that be? What's the outcome of sin? Separation from God, God who is the source of life. The wages of sin is death. Death, decay, destruction, that is all there is. Remember John 10.10, 10. thief comes to kill and destroy, steal, kill, and destroy. So when we feed or when we only live for satisfying our own sinful nature, we are going to harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. The rest of the verse, but those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessings if we don't give up. Therefore, Whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Especially to those in the family of faith. Now, Paul is rounding out that whole discussion kind of where he started. And that is that we have got to pay attention to God. We have got to understand there is our sinful nature at work in our lives, and we can either live by that sinful nature, or we can live by the Spirit. And one is horrible, and the other is great. And I don't just mean the doing, I mean the outcomes. So it really comes down to a question. Are we going to surrender to God's spirit in our lives and live by our spiritual nature that has been given to us by God, the indwelling presence of the spirit of God? And as a result, find eternal life, find things built up, find this fruit of the spirit, because the Spirit in our lives produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or are we going to live by our sinful nature that never leads anywhere good, that leads to death and decay? Our sinful nature that leads us to or manifest its fruit, if you will, Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. So which one do you want? Really? If you claim to be a brother or sister in Christ, if you claim to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, which one of these do you pursue? Is it the sinful nature or the spirit? They're both at work. You have to choose. Mm -hmm.
Now we get to Paul's closing of his letter. And he does something unusual here. At this point in the letter, he's been using an amanuensis, a scribe, which was not uncommon. Most formal letters and whatnot in that day and age, you would have a scribe and you would kind of dictate your thoughts. It may be word for word, or it may be you give them general ideas and they encapsulate it. It was done in various ways. But here, a, a scribe or an amanuensis has been writing the book of Galatians. Now, it's Paul's work, but this guy's been actually pinning it. When we get to verse 11, at the end of Galatians, Paul takes over the writing, and he makes point to mention it, because it has significance. In verse 11, he says, Notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. Now, I'm not going to get into why large letters, and did he have eyesight problems, and blah, blah, because basically we don't know. There's speculation, but we just don't know. Obviously, he wrote larger than the other guy because he mentions it. Let's just take it for that. In verse 12, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. So he's saying, okay, you got two camps here. And now discussing the first one in verses 12 through 13, he says, look, all they're doing is trying to build their own reputation. They're not following the entirety of the law. They're advocating this like hybrid version of the law. My words, not Paul's this hybrid version where they want you to be circumcised so they can point how, look, they're my followers. They went and got circumcised. They jumped through the hoops that I set before them. And because they're not proclaiming the cross of Christ, they're more accepted by the Jews, these teachers, because they're advocating the appearance of following the Jewish law, although they're not following it. And they're not advocating the grace of God through Christ on the cross, which is an offense to the Jews, the ones that are not turning to God, the ones that are rejecting. Um, they found the cross of Christ to be offensive. And Paul's saying, look, you've got that. And then in verse 14, he shifts, or there's this, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's intentions, or excuse me, and the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is is whether we have been transformed into new or into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. Now, again, as he's prone to do, Paul has said volumes 
in just a few verses. He's saying the only thing he has to boast in is the cross of Christ. He is saying, I'm hanging everything on the work of Christ done at the cross. And he says, because of that cross, his own interest in this world has in effect been crucified, been put to death, and the world's interest in him too. He lost all significance and standing in the Jewish community when he converted to Christianity. All of his political power, all of his prestige, all of his standing, frankly, probably any assets he had, if he had any wealth at all, it it vanished because it all would have been tied to the Jewish community. It cost him this world to cling to Christ. But he's saying, I also lost all interest in the things of this world because of the cross of Christ. And then in verse 15, great reminder to all of us and summing up everything in this letter to the Galatian church in a very concise manner to to leave them with a final thought from his own hands. He says, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. What principle? The cross of Christ. The sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for all. That we are saved by grace through faith. Not through holding to the law. And it doesn't matter what has been. It matters who we are in Christ now. Who are we in Christ now? Who are you in Christ now? Well, the answer to that question is very simple. It's there in the end of the verse 16. They are the new people of God. New people of God. What does that mean? Well, it's actually a, a translation of what in the Old Testament and much of the New Testament was a very specific phrase. They are the Israel of God or the people of God. Yeah. You are the new people of God, God's chosen people, Israel. Now he talked back in the beginning of the book about that. Here he's bringing him back to it and saying, look, it's when you have that faith that Abraham had. It's when you are saved by the promise to Abraham, not the law. Because the law doesn't save. When your righteousness comes from the child of the promise, then you are part of the family, the people of God. And then closing out the last couple verses, Paul says in 17, from now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. For I bear on my body the scars that show that I belong to Jesus. Again, from now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. For I bear on my body the scars to show that I belong to Jesus. He's saying, look, if I were worried about the things of this world and its rules and its laws and even the the stuff of the law, he said, if I were worried about any of that, I wouldn't look like I do. He has been beaten. 
They have tried to stone him to death and left him for dead, drug his presumably unconscious body outside the gates of the city and left it for dead. Paul bears very realistically these scars. And to him, each one of them proclaims, I belong to Jesus. Because I didn't care about the things of this world that it values, that it says are important. I didn't care about our sinful nature and what it calls us to. I cared about Christ and what he calls us to and the work he calls us to be about and how he calls us to live. And I understand my righteousness, my salvation comes through him and him alone. I belong to Jesus. How is that for closing of a letter? And then he gives them a blessing. Dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let that be our closing prayer to our study of Galatians. Let us pray, God, may this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us, be with our spirits. Father, help us to live our spiritual nature in you. Amen. Amen.